The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already, in the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the, day, during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool who will happen to me also? Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all that is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to the despair, to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I see, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, he has made everything beautiful in, his net, in his, its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that when, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, 
I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Ecclesiastes is a timeless book dealing with a timeless subject. How to live life in light of the certainty of death. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to be able to cope with that and actually be, to be equipped to live well in light of it. To start with, we need a dose of reality and of humility. And that won't all be easy to hear. The end of the book tells us, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. A goad is a stick uh, with some nails on the end, which shepherds and farmers used to provoke animals into action, uh, to spike them. This book is meant to hurt a bit. The introduction in verses 1 and 2 present us with the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This could be a reference to Israel's famous King Solomon, who could have written this book at the end of his life, reflecting on his triumphs and tragedies. Or I think perhaps more likely it was written later, uh, looking back on generations of Israelite kings. But even then, the governing illusion, um, or the king we're to picture behind the pen, is Solomon, Israel's wisest and most accomplished king, the global phenom of his day. Today, he'd sort of be a Frankenstein combination of Queen Elizabeth II and Joe Biden and Elon Musk. Uh, in one sense, the greatest of kings and the greatest of men. And what's the summary of his message? Vanity of vanities, he says, all is vanity. We've just finished, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, looking at the song of songs according to the Bible, the peak song ever written, a song about good love, about bad love, that ultimately points to God's great love for his bride. Well, now we have the vanity of vanities, the epitome of futility in the world. And what is that? Well, it's your life and mine, says the Bible. Actually, the entirety of human existence. The word vanity comes from the word breath, and it's onomatopoeic in that it sounds like a breath as you say it. It's not quite nothingness, but it does express something of fleetingness and futility. Something that no matter how hard you try is ungraspable. You can't get a hold of it. And in the first half of Ecclesiastes, it seems to be contrasted with the idea of gain. That's the big question the king sets up in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word gain is from the language of the city behind us. And what profit, what return on your investment, and what can we get out of life? Specifically from our toil, 
our work, our labor under the sun. When all is said and done, and what will you have to show for your life? And I think there are three main themes running through Ecclesiastes. The first is stated unequivocally up front, and that life really is gainless, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And the king doesn't just want us to understand that, uh, but to really feel it in our bones and to believe it. Um, your life, Michael, your life, Angus, your life, Janet, is vanity, ungraspable, gainless. But the second is goodness. Even amidst the futility, there is tremendous amount which is good and that we can enjoy. When we have all our pretensions about life burned to the ground, and one of the big things the king wants is for us to embrace uh, the goodness in life and to enjoy it. Gainless goodness, and third, there is a goal. As you read through Ecclesiastes again and again, you get a sense that there's a longing for there to be a different answer to the question he poses. And what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Who can bring him to see what will come after him? Unanswered thus far. Those are the three big themes throughout the book. In our three weeks, we'll focus um, on one each in a different week. So tonight, we'll focus mainly on gainlessness. Next week, we'll focus on goodness. And in our last week, we'll focus on the goal. So if you want the full picture, you'll have to come back. And here is the first major prod from the king. That life in this world really is futile. He begins by answering his question from verse 3 with an introductory poem in verses 4 to 11. And what he seems to do is bring to bear observations of the natural world to human history. The world is trapped in a never-ending circle of life. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So the sun keeps rising, uh, rivers keep flowing into the seas. The wind blows here and it blows there. And the king applies all of that to what he's witnessed in human history in verses 9 to 11. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Kingdoms and empires and civilizations, they rise and fall. Some of us may be familiar with the rest of history, the rest is history podcast. And earlier this year, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook traced the history of the great city of Babylon, over thousands of years, different kingdoms in Babylon have risen and fallen. Some stayed in power for over 400 years. Others didn't quite last that long, but were conquered or fell apart. But I bet in the prosperous middle part of those different empires, they felt pretty invincible, like they're going to keep building and progressing forever. But no, they all came to an end, like any other. The United States is the preeminent global superpower at the moment, and has been for about 100 years. Maybe they'll keep that going for another 300 years, or maybe they won't. But it will fall, like any other. 
But I imagine the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, probably has his own nation in mind as well. The history of Israel's leaders, and from the judges to the kings, seems like a never-ending cycle of rise and fall. Some leaders were faithful to God for a time, and they saw good times. But those leaders themselves, or their successors, they often rejected God, and they plunged their nation into disaster. As the sun rises, as the sun sets, Israel's circle of life was one of disaster and deliverance, disaster and deliverance. And as he looks back, the king says, it's weary, it's wearisome, it appears never-ending. It looks like nothing will break the cycle. Israel were meant to be God's special people, with God on their side. But even their king says, there is nothing new under the sun. If they have no breakthrough, how does anyone else have any hope? I wonder if we can feel that a bit. Do we know the futility of the circle of life? Well, after this opening poem, if we're unconvinced, the king seeks to dispel our ignorance. In verses 12 to 18, he officially introduces his investigation into human experience and offers his initial conclusions. It's like an abstract to his research paper. In verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. So he sought to find out all that happens under heaven, and he sees it as an unhappy business that humanity has. Under the sun uh, speaks of observable public history, what's on the world stage, under the lights. And the king has really seen it all. And it is all futile, he says, as a child chasing after a gale. You can't catch the wind, you can't shepherd the wind, no matter how hard you try, you cannot get a handle on wind. And he summarizes the situation in verse 15 like this. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Human experience is crooked. It's bent out of shape. It's misaligned. It isn't right. And it cannot be straightened or fixed. And the point of him showing us his investigation, and this king showing us his investigation to come, is that if he can't overcome the futility of life, then no one can. First, he tries pleasure in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And this Solomon-like king of Jerusalem, uh, he has more money than you, uh, and he more resources than you'll ever have, and more power than you'll ever know. He could test wise and foolish pleasure, a good and bad pleasure, uh, more fully than you or I ever could. And the evidence he brings today is what he might call, what we might call, his lived experience. Um, not that there is any other type of experience. Verse three. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He essentially works to try and create his own little perfect world, his own Garden of Eden. It looks like the deluxe edition of The Sims, but in real life. He forms and he fills his paradise, but it doesn't bring any gain. You can have the townhouse in Paris with the most beautiful courtyard garden, all the staff you wanted, and an entourage that would show up even the Kardashians. But when all is said and done, the king says in verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toll I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's futile. There is nothing to be gained. There is no profit in it. So he says he turned to wisdom and to madness and to folly. And he despairs because he thinks you can't reinvent the wheel of human experience. Technology may have improved since his day. Your servants could be robots and your parks may have hoverboards or whatever it is. But seeking pleasure or wisdom or even trying the path of foolishness has already been done. It's a broken record. For what it's worth, he says, having tried those things in verse 13, then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. It's almost self-evident that it's better to be wise than to be foolish. Being a grade-A idiot in life doesn't often pay off. But here's the big thing. Everyone is going to die. And death levels everything in the end. Death has a spotless record when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Death doesn't discriminate. It takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. Verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's the point in living wisely, the king says, when I end up no better off than the fool? Elon Musk's body will fit in the same coffin as the next man, or his ashes in the same sized urn. King Solomon has the same fate as Idi Amin. Life is like a game of Monopoly. Some people do well, some people go broke, but at the end of the game, everything goes back in the box. And these facts of life made him hate life. It was grievous to him. Why do I and the village idiot end up with the same out of life? Life is vanity, a striving after the wind. The efforts of his life, he says, were ultimately meaningless. But sometimes we're tempted to think, or perhaps we can see it more easily in others, um, I'll leave a legacy, something worthwhile to be remembered. I'll make a difference. I'll make a better life for my children, whatever it is. But the king sees through that mirage, and it made him hate his work even more. And verse 18, he said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Just think of Manchester United and Alex Ferguson after he retired. 26 years of blood, sweat and tears poured into the club, only to see David Moyes and the rest of his successors tear it all up. Or think of the US presidents. Jay Biden's first day in office, he signed 15 executive orders, most of which were reversing Donald Trump's policies. And there's a 50-50 chance that whoever the next president is uh, will reverse all of Biden's policies all over again. It's the circle of life, and the king says it's all vanity. Some moronic king will come after me and enjoy my palaces and my treasures and all the good things I've done for my people. Or even worse, some invading army might come and strip it all out and leave my kingdom eviscerated. This is not only vanity, he says, but a great evil. It's futile and it's fallen. It's not right. And it's sad to think, isn't it, that everything you or I achieve in life will come to nothing and give it a couple of generations and no one will care. We spend so much effort building our own little tin pot kingdoms, but the striving, the long nights of worrying, all end up completely pointless. Verse 22, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Like every Israelite king, um, you are going to die. I'm going to die. And we'll end up with as much as life as the most foolish person we know. And we're dreaming if we think we can control our legacy at all. That is the totality of your existence. Your life in the sandbox of the world really is futile. After every generation, your experience are raked over and we start again. The king is not the only person in history uh, to come up with this conclusion. He's one of many, really. Famously, the character Antoine in Jean-Paul Sartre's novel, Nausea, comes to see that all his achievements and relationships and experiences are meaningless in light of his death, leading to a, a feeling of despair and disgust, uh, a nausea. And that life is futile, uh, is the only reasonable, rational, and honest conclusion of the investigation into human existence under the sun. The question really is why, and what do we do with it? Well, secondly, Life is, really is futile, and that's because God deliberately did this so that people fear him. And I wonder if we can be quite naive on this point. We sometimes act like, even if we don't think it, that God is a cuddly granddad in the sky who is too old and helpless to fix the problems beneath his feet. Well, actually, Ecclesiastes tells us, God has deliberately made your life futile. He has purposely made your life vanity. In chapter three, we get another poem. And it starts with the statement, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. The, king's, the king observes that for all of human experience, 
a time has been set out. It's been set out by God. So just part of it, verse two, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. All the way down to verse eight, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for peace and a time, a time for war, sorry, and a time for peace. And what's the point? We need to look at 9 to 11 before we can really see that. What's the point of this poem? What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet so, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. By this stage, I think the question there is rhetorical. And he expects us to say, Nothing, there is nothing to be gained. But he makes something clearly explicit, but that has previously been mainly implicit. It is God who has made it like this. It is God who has given um, us things to do in this life. It says he, um, that it may, he made them beautiful in its time. And it might be better to think of beautiful as fitting here, or, or rightly placed. I don't think there is such a thing as a beautiful human war. That should be clear to us if you've watched the news uh, for the last month or so. The point is God has ordained all these things, yet he's also put eternity in our hearts. Time goes back beyond where we can fathom, and it will go on likewise. And we have no way of perceiving all that God has done. The meaning of everything God has ordained throughout human history, it cannot be fathomed. The theory of everything cannot be worked out. You can read all the philosophy books in the world and you won't scratch the surface about what God is doing. You can only really experience it on the surface as it happens to you. And what's more, God has made it so you can't escape that. Well, why is that? Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So what are your options when you realize the way that God has nuked the purposefulness of life in this world? Well, you can despair. And it seems the king did a bit of that, banging his head on the wall. He felt real hatred for his life and his work when he first came to terms with it. Or you can go for delusion. Life is meaningless, so I'll make up my own meaning. I think that's what was Sartre's position. Um, it's also the stated position of a number of my friends. Either they say they make up their own meaning, or they're happy to join with society's made-up meanings. That's the way they get meaning from life. Or the other option is dependence. The futility of life in the face of death and eternity is meant to drive us to our knees before our maker, to acknowledge our finitude and our need for him um, if we have any hope. And it's not just any hope for the future, but actually hope of any meaning in our lives, if I can put it like that. If we realize that life really is futile, and we also realize that it is God who has made it like that, our only recourse is to fear him, to say, you are God and I am not, and I bow to you. This king has tested the, the, uh, to the full the life of wisdom 
and the life of folly. He's achieved great things, some great things in the world, better than we ever could. He's also plunged deeper into the disgusting depths of folly than even Hugh Hefner ever did. And he says there's no gain in either. When you see vanity of vanities, that all is vanity, your only path is to fear the God who made it that way. But even in these chapters, um, in the midst of the vanity of life, um, we get a sense of this God. We see it in the bits that we skipped over, if you notice that. God does not leave us with nothing in our vain life. You see that in chapter 2, verses 26 to 24. And we'll look at chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In the midst of a gainless world, God has given a gift to us and to all people who fear him. That we can enjoy what has been, he has given us to do in this life. We can enjoy those foundational gifts of creation and everything which flows from them. Food and drink and work. There is joy to be had and there is good to be done. That is a gift of God for us. There is joy to be had in our vain lives. Real joy is to be found by fearing God and embracing what we receive from him rather than striving for some sort of meaning and significance that we'll never be able to find. We'll think more about that next week. For now, what does this goad of futility uh, of life um, mean to achieve in us? Well, surely first it's a right fear and humility before God. And we ask the question, are we, are we grasping for gain in this life? Um, do we put all our efforts into our career objectives and our life plans? I find it a perennial battle not to do that sort of thing. But our little tin pot kingdoms will do just as well as Solomon's kingdom or the Roman Empire. Um, they will end in death and dust and rubble. We will fear the, and the question is, will we fear the God who made it like that? Will we acknowledge our need for him if there's to be any meaning in this futile world? What is crooked, crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Sometimes Christians, I think, pretend that it isn't true now for us, uh, what we've looked at, because Jesus has come. But he's not yet removed us from this world under the sun. We are still in the crooked world. The New Testament author James, speaking um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, laughs at our life plans, and he agrees with the king in Ecclesiastes. In James 14, uh, 4 verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We might think, first I'll get this job, then I'll get that job. I'll live in this flat, then I'll live in this house or whatever it is. Well, tomorrow could be the time for mourning or death, and God will decide that. Not that you will achieve anything of any meaning or any matter anyway. We still live under the sun in a world which God has made crooked and is not yet made straight. Our plans, our achievements, our whole life, says James, is still a mist, a vapor, a breath, 
that vanishes, making no lasting impact on the world and bringing no profit to us. We too need to continually come to terms with the gainlessness of the nature of life if we're to fully enjoy uh, the goodness that God gives us in it. Death makes your life in this world futile. So fear God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, please help us not to be deceived about life in this world, but to see clearly that you have made it vanity so that we would fear you. And might that liberate us from grasping at gain for ourselves, that we might really enjoy your good gifts as you bestow them upon us. Amen.